0: Thanks for coming. And uh, I'd like to welcome Jessica Hammer here today. Jessica's uh, working on her, just wrapping her PhD up at Columbia University, uh, a PhD in the area of cognitive studies in education. And her dissertation title is Playing Prejudice, the Impact of Gameplay on Attributions of Gender and Racial Bias. Jessica has a really interesting background, because in addition to this work in cognitive and educational sector, her master's is from the um, Interactive Tech, uh, Telecommunications Program at NYU, and her bachelor's is in computer science from Harvard. Bachelor of Arts? It's not a bachelor of science? Not when I was there. Yeah. Oh. Um, very active in the publishing. She's been, uh, in, uh, just to give some of the journals, uh, educational technology, um, New Literacy Sampler and the Intriguing Financial Cryptography. That's (laughs) an interesting journal. Uh, Jessica's work, uh, besides what's obvious from the title of her dissertation, uh, focuses also on design. So, game design is a key part of what she's also studying uh, in terms of, and she's very interested also in in, uh, player uh, positioning and responses. So, ethnographic work comes to play there. And some of her teaching has involved teaching game design. So without
1: further ado, let's figure out what games
0: mean. Jessica, welcome.
1: Thank you. Uh, I wish I had an answer for you about what games mean and how they mean it. But this is actually, uh, this is the question that I expect to spend my life trying to answer. is understanding the relationship between games and players uh, and the effects that go both ways, really. So if you think about games, right, I, I don't. I try to stay away from the what is a game debate. But, you know, when I think about games, what I think about are the rules, the mechanics, uh, the narrative of the game, the interface, the goals that people have in the game, right? So if you were thinking about chess, for example, right, you'd say, okay, well, you know, chess has 64 squares. It has pieces that move in different ways. Uh, there's a rule about you alternating turns with your opponent, um, and then, if you think about players, you know people have different experiences in games. So, two people who play the same game may have a very different experience. I could, you know, beat you in chess in six moves, or you could beat me in a long, drawn-out game that was extremely dramatic. Um, people process the experiences that they have in games. People have different emotional relationship to games, and people also use games in different ways in their lives um, for practical or emotional reasons. So, um, I'm interested in the question of how games affect the people who play those games. So, for example, you can start to think about how game mechanics construct player experience. The experience of chess, relatively cerebral, right? Patient, turn taking, you know, a lot of planning ahead, versus the experience of tag, using your body, screaming, running around. Maybe you guys don't play tag that way, but I do. but also the effect of how players use games, the social structures within which players use games, uh, affect the way the game itself is experienced. So if you think about a chess tournament, for example, as opposed to families playing chess together. My father taught me to play chess. You know, I teach my children to play chess. Those are two very different human experiences with what appears to be the same game. So uh, there's really this interactive relationship between the game and the player that if we hope to make games that address real-world problems, we need to understand and unpack, okay? And like I say, this is not an answer. This is a question. So um, I'm interested in this area of real-world problems because I think that people come to games with purpose, with meaning, Right? They want to use games for some reason in their lives, in society, in the world. So when people talk about real-world problems, I get a lot of people going, oh, it's like, like that protein game, right? This is uh, Foldit, right? People working together, to, you, you guys know what, what this is. Um, or, oh, okay, it's like Remission, which is a game that helps kids comply with uh, taking their cancer medication. And these are games that are purpose-built to address real-world problems, social issues. There's games like Dance Dance Revolution that were not necessarily designed to address issues of health and fitness but are often used that way by individuals. Um, And, uh, you know, these are sort of problems that are a little bit institutionalized. But I'm interested also in the way that people use games to address very intimate problems. Like, uh, I don't know if any of you do this, but when I am stressed out or bored, I play Bejeweled. Um, it's very satisfying. Why do people do that? How do they do that? What kinds of games do they find satisfying when they have these intimate human needs? You know, in World of Warcraft, social needs, people want to be seen as a leader or as a hero. So, all of these, I would say, fall into the larger bucket of what I'm interested in, of real world problems. And as you can see, there's an enormous variety of real world problems. So one of the things that I try to do is pick apart different problems, understand how different problems operate differently. And similarly, players are not all alike. How are different people different? How do the prior experiences that people come to games with, how does that shape them? How do people's cultures shape them? How do people's personality characteristics shape them? Right, Not all people are alike. And of course, not all games are alike. So, what I try to do is, you know, drill down into this question by looking at specific interactions between game, player, and problem, um, and uh, sort of use that to pull out themes that we can then analyze to try to create some commonalities, right? Some larger trajectories of what we can claim about, for example, the impact of specific game design mechanics or the way that a particular person or group of people use games in their lives, or what kinds of problems are well solved by certain theories, understandings of games. So I would call that the larger purpose of my work. And what I'm gonna talk to you about today is share with you three projects that represent three different approaches that I'm using to try to understand this question um, and to understand different aspects of this question and uh, hopefully we'll bring it all together at the end. But as I say, this is the question that I expect to spend my life answering. So uh, what we're looking at here is ways to begin to get answers and hopefully answers that are not just useful to me, but of course that are useful to other scholars and researchers in this field. So the first project that I'd like to talk to you about is my dissertation work. Um, it's, uh, I've designed and developed a game called Advance and I'm doing research with it. So. Um, This is really looking at how a game can affect players, right? We're really starting very heavily with the game and saying, what does it do to people, okay? And it's asking, you know, can a game change players' concepts of how racism and sexism function? I'll get back to that word concept in a minute. Um, Maybe I should be saying models because we got into that before. Uh, how do you design for that, and that's something I want to spend some time talking about because it's a serious game design challenge. And how do you know if you've succeeded in doing this? All right. So I'm going to talk about each of these three questions just for a couple minutes in turn. So when we say can a game change players' concepts or models of how racism and sexism function, um, I want to share with you one of the examples that got me interested in this question. All right. And it's this. The Mammoth Book of Mind-Blowing Science Fiction. 21 of the most mind-blowing science fiction stories ever. Wanna make a guess? 21 stories by white men, okay? And the internet exploded because that's what the internet does. So I was looking at um, the kinds of arguments that people were making in these discussions. And what I found is this, is you had people saying, this is a really problematic outcome, there's an issue here, something is wrong, You had people saying, no, this is exactly as it should be. And that's sort of the way that people position themselves. That's how people, those were the sides in the argument, right? Is this problematic or is this justice? But what I got interested in is this other question. That actually the division that interests me is between people who were saying, this is the work of an individual versus people who are saying this is the work of larger social or systemic forces, right? So when I talk about changing people's models of how racism and sexism work, I'm actually not that interested in taking them across this line, right? Going from, uh, you know, this is just, this is right, this is fair, and, and, and showing them, you know, actually there's something problematic here. What I'm interested in is actually helping people cross this line, right? To say, well, you know, you think that Bias is about a thing that one person does to another person at one given moment in time. But actually, it's more complicated than that. There are different parts to a system that work together. You may get feedback effects. You may get emergent effects that are not intended by any one individual in the system. And uh, that got me started on looking at the differences between direct and emergent models of how people think. So it turns out that this is actually really hard to do getting people to go from a direct process to an emergent process understanding of something. Because a direct process is easy to tell a story about, right? I did something to you and it was bad and I meant it to be bad. That's narrative reasoning in many ways, right? You can tell yourself a story, right? But saying, well, okay, there are institutional factors. Uh, This pool of people, for example, that um, the, the book is drawing from is not representative of the population as a whole. There are cultural norms. All of these things are actually much harder to tell a story about and much harder to get people to understand. So I sort of said to myself, all right, why would we think games can help us? And games do three things that I thought were interesting in this this context. Games let you simulate a complex system. Right, and they make you experiment with a complex system. Right, so I'm playing a game. Uh, I'm playing uh, Angry Birds. This is not. I, I will not admit to being an addict. Um, you know, I don't necessarily need to understand physics at a cognitive level in order to play the game, but I am actually experimenting with a system of. Physics, right? Where am I throwing my bird into this structure in order to make it fall down? How can I begin to understand the vulnerabilities of different kinds of structures? I understand the system by playing with the system. And that, uh, just to diverge into learning theory for one moment, is one way that you can help people engage in model change, is that kind of experimentation, direct experimentation. So games seemed pretty appealing on that front. Um, Of course, you could do that with a simulation. But games also motivate player desire. So one of the things that I really wanted to do was to get people engaged with this question, uh, not because I told them to, but because the game made them want to, right? And there's a big difference there between being didactic and prescriptive and between letting player goals and desires sort of emerge from the system that you've created. Um, And of course, there's also the cultural status of games. So the people who most need transformation are the people who are going to be very resistant if you come in and you say well i have this diversity training exercise that i'd like you to and you know the boom that's it right entrenchment uh is is one of is one of the big factors in social psychology people don't want to change their ideas about socially sensitive issues but in the sort of magic circle of a game in this uh sort of other framework it's like a way of hooking around people's defenses and getting them to take seriously this experience that if it were presented to them in a more serious context, they might reject. So uh, what I'd like to do today is talk to you a little bit about how you design for that, right? So you've kind of got this concept, but what does it mean to turn that into practice? And uh, I defined sort of a three-stage process. Is you choose a model, right? What's your model of how discrimination operates? How do you represent it in the game, and how do you get people cognitively engaged with it? And I just want to point out, you can control this. You can control this. You can only do your best and hope here. Um, So uh, this, it turns out, is actually a really challenging process, and this is something where I did extensive play testing, interviewing people to understand how these become this. So, uh, to begin with model choice, I actually have two different models represented in my games. I'm just gonna talk to you one, about one of them today, which is perceptual bias. And perceptual bias is the idea that uh, when we know that someone is a member of a... Uh, uh, when we know that someone is a woman or we know that someone is of a certain ethnic or racial group, we have different expectations for them. So my favorite story about this is, has to do with orchestras. This is a real-world story. Um, they, Their representation of women in national orchestras was very, very low. They put up a screen. They put down carpets. You could not hear people's gait tell if they were a man or a woman. And the representation of women in orchestras increased radically. I mean, I believe it doubled. Um, and obviously, that is not a factor of, well, in the year before, there were you know, only very few talented women and the year after there were twice as many talented women. It's that the judges were not intentionally, but were nonetheless perceiving the performances of the women as less successful. And there are studies of this, for example, with hiring, um, you give a resume a stereotypically white name versus a stereotypically black name, and you'll see disparities, again, not just in the lab, but in the real world, sending them out to real world employers, you get different response rates. So perceptual bias is um, uh, a real-world problem that is actually uh, sort of hard for people to understand because it's unconscious. And more than just unconscious, it tends to be something that involves repeated encounters. right? So for example, if you think about a relatively small difference between groups, let's say the perceptual bias means one group has a 45% chance of admittance past some gate and the other group has 55% right? 10% disparity. You could imagine having an unconscious disparity that's that high. And at the first level, it doesn't look so bad. But if you have repeated gates, the problem just continues to get worse and worse because the pool that you're drawing from for the 55% group continues to get larger relative to the other group, okay? So that's the um, model that I got interested in seeing, you know, how could you convey this? And That's the question, right? How do you convey it? Because you can't just give people like a little, you know, well, here's your group and now try to move people forward. There has to be actual gameplay. So I just want to show you the sort of underlying dynamic system that I'm working with. Uh, You in this game are a recruiter. You have clients who come to you and you also have money. You would like to turn your clients into money. Money is good. Um, and you, your money is also your score for the game. So, uh, you don't just want the money because money is this sort of desirable thing, but you actually want the money because the money is how we measure your success. Um, and every time your client gets a promotion, you get some money, right? So you're sort of managing your clients in the system, trying to get them promoted. Um, and whenever they do, they get some money. You get some money. They get some money too. Um, And you can spend your money on upgrades that increase your client's chance of getting a promotion sooner. You also have expenses. So you can't just sit back and like place like three clients and kind of go, yeah, okay, cool. I'll just wait for the time to run out, right? It's you actually have business expenses periodically in the game. So you have this constant pressure to turn clients into money. You can't just stop. Um, And... I introduced bias into the system. So not all clients have an equal chance of getting promotions. And that bias is chosen at random for each game, which is important because you don't just want people importing their existing ideas about how discrimination works into the game, because then they can just use their existing ideas instead of actually thinking about how the game functions. I wanted people to be experimenting and trying to figure out, whoa, this person, they seem to need a lot more effort to get promoted. What's going on here? And how can I address this? Because man, I just spent a lot of time and I'm not getting a whole lot of money as a reward. So you know, this is just to give you some ideas of how the game looks. Uh, you've got your, your, uh, your clients who come in here. Uh, you've got, uh, this is a representation of the organization which has different levels. So your clients level up and go from level to level and each level is sort of a different puzzle that you're trying to place people. Um, people have uh, sort of different levels of uh, difficulty dealing with the people around them. So uh, this is where we get into a microaggressions model, that there's, there's evidence showing that, you know, there are sort of everyday stresses that impair cognitive functioning, social relationships in the workplace. Um, and, uh, you know, when somebody succeeds enough, so they're kind of, you know, happy, productive, Uh, they can be promoted to the next level, or if things go very badly for them, they can be demoted, which fortunately in the real world does not involve falling through a trapdoor on the floor. Um, So the cognitive engagement with the model of discrimination uh, comes from the player has this limited time, they've got limited resources, right? They're constantly being, money is constantly being spent, so they got to kind of make more money than they're spending. And uh, I created this requirement to constrain character placement. So a character has three stats um, and a job has three stats. And, you know, the character stats have to be greater than or equal to the requirements for the job if otherwise they cannot get the job. So there's some, uh, so you can see you've got your stats here. And um, you can see for the, the character in the job actually had to redesign some of this interface stuff. Um, So, you know, over time, the higher the level um, characters get stats when they, every time they're promoted, they get a bump to one of their stats. Um, You can upgrade them with cash and every level, the jobs require more and more uh, higher and higher stats, but also for certain groups, um, the stat requirements for the same job are higher, right? So that's how I'm modeling perceptual bias. You could try to put one person in the job and a different person in the job and oh my God, I have to spend like 400 more dollars training this person up to get this job. Is that a worthwhile investment? Um, So players sort of have to engage with um, this disparity at a very immediate level. And I just want to say one of the things that I learned, oh, sorry, before I get to that, um, you know, and of course, the game deliberately has multiple levels. So at level one, level two, level three, level four. And I know I'm framing this in terms of chance, but what I learned is people are terrible at understanding chance. So originally, you would try to get someone promoted and you'd have a character versus character fight, right? So, you know, your character would go up against a non-player character and there'd be like a 45% chance of your character getting the position... People were terrible at understanding what was going on because it turns out one of our cognitive biases is the availability heuristic. We pick something that is very dramatic or we pick something that is very recent. That's what we use to make our judgments. People were not understanding that there was a, there was sort of a probability difference there. So uh, I ditched that whole mechanic and instead uh, sort of made it okay. You know, there's no chance involved. It's just you have to get this character to a higher standard if you actually want them to be. Uh, successful. So it's the, you know, um, uh, uh, you, know, be, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half as far sort of um, model of doing that. So beyond the qualitative design-based research, what I'm working on right now is actually looking at impacts. And uh, just to give you an idea of the kinds of questions that I'm asking and the way that I'm thinking about looking at data to answer them is asking, you know, are players' mental models of discrimination changing while they're playing this game? And uh, to do that, I'm looking at in-game data. Like, are they getting better at placing members of the discriminated group, for example? Um, And I can also look at some really interesting stuff, like, are they quicker to figure out what's going on when the discrimination parallels real-life discrimination? Or what if... I'm collecting demographic data, so what about when their own group is the group that is being discriminated against? So there's a lot of really interesting stuff that you can just see with in-game data across a player base. Um, But I'm also asking if players' conscious ideas about discrimination change while they're playing the game. And for this, I designed and piloted a test that I'm calling the Bias Attribution Test, um, which uh, basically gives people an unfair outcome And asks them to choose one of four explanations, two of which are systemic and two of which are individual, right? So we can kind of see how that works. And uh, I'm also looking at attitudes, and this is something I found out in the qualitative research, is that people would get incredibly pissed off at these companies that were being biased against their clients, so they really wanted to help. They got very emotionally engaged. So even though I expected this to be a primarily sort of cognitive intervention, I actually... I'm giving people the modern racism and modern sexism tests, which are uh, sort of the currently one of the currently accepted measures for looking at people's attitudes about racial and gender bias and seeing if there's change there. And I'm also looking at whether there are differences in these measures in terms of the way that games the game is designed. So I'm actually creating I've created three versions of the game, one of which is implicit rewards, right? If you figure out that there's bias in the game and you identify the bias, all it lets you do is play better. That's the only benefit for you. But that does get you more money. And if the explicit reward condition, this is something I see a lot in educational games, hey, can you answer this question about bias correctly? Would you like some money for that? Um, and uh, then there's the condition that I call generative rewards, which is where I think the most interest, deepest processing is gonna happen and you're gonna see the most cognitive model change. Uh, where identifying the bias actually changes the rules of the game. So you place a call to, you know, the Equal Opportunity Commission, and uh, they say, oh, great, we'll give you a bonus for every member of this group that you place. So all of a sudden, the economics of where to put your attention changes, and you have to work, if you want to profit, towards solving the problem of, all right, if this institution is biased, where, how do I work around the bias in this institution to place people in this group? Uh, so your strategy shift is how you make more money. And my uh, hypothesis is that the strategy shift is actually gonna lead to the most transformation, not only in uh, 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 conceptual models, but also in outcomes. So, you know, I've gotta study design. I'm sort of putting people into different groups. I'm using a Solomon six group design because I think asking people about bias before the game may influence the way they play the game. Um, So, you know, you can see people are getting split up here, they're getting split up here. Um, And, you know, I'm still working on the qualitative parts of this, uh, the the quantitative parts of this. But, you know, I have some pretty clear expectations for what I expect to see, and we'll find out if that's uh, what actually comes out of this. So, um, as you can see, this is very much about well, what did this game do to the person who played it? Did it change their models, right? But uh, I'd like to share with you a project where actually it's still about how games affect the player but it's based on player desires. So something the player already wants. And this is a project called Lit to Quit which is actually um, uh, we got a grant or really started as a student project in my advanced game design class. Got a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and then my students hired me to come work on the project which was pretty awesome. And uh, this really looks at how can games affect players in a way that the player is already seeking. So the player is looking for help, can the game help them with something they already want? Because right? advance, you're not necessarily just reaching people who want to change their minds. In fact, the goal is to reach people who don't already want to change their minds. So uh, the Lit to Quit project is about helping people quit smoking. And the design challenges and assessment challenges of smoking reduction. We have to say smoking reduction, by the way, because helping people smoke less is also a victory. So um, what we did is we looked at the real problem. It turns out smoking is still a big issue in the states. 44.5 million smokers, the leading cause of preventable death, none, even after years of uh, you know, PSAs and warnings on tobacco labels. But it turns out that 70% of smokers want to quit. And every year, 40% try to quit. Any guesses on what percentage of smokers actually succeed in quitting? 10% 5%, 5% of smokers, that's right. But you're absolutely right, it's, it's ridiculously low considering that people are motivated to do this. So what we did is we actually went out and looked at the psychology of motivation. And it turns out that quitting smoking is really hard because of our motivational structures, right? So uh, it's repeated temptations, you know, if you smoke a pack a day, that's like probably way more than 20 times a day you want to smoke a cigarette. Immediate gratifications, right? When you smoke, it's good right now, but the rewards are deferred. And this turns out to be a problem that like our brains are just super bad at handling. And it's super bad at handling them because, uh, that would be the technical term, Um <laughs> because we are not always the same kind of person, right? We change over time from day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. And uh, when we're in a motivational state, we are actually not so bad at problems like quitting smoking because we're serious. We're thinking very hard about what we want in the future right? And we're able to make rational decisions in which the trade-offs between immediate pleasure and long-term gain can be processed sort of, you know, cognitively. What do I really want in my life? Where am I going? The problem is this is not always who we are. Sometimes we are in a paratelic motivational state, and that really is a technical term, um, where we're just interested in what's fun right now. We're sensation seeking. We're after delight and joy and Uh, And smoking, if we are smokers. We are particularly vulnerable to uh, picking up a cigarette when we are in a paratelic motivational state. So we said, all right, you know, there's this uh, urge uh, uh, theory of smoking that leads to replacement therapies. So if you want to smoke, it's because you've got an urge, you want the sensation. Well, it turns out that you can maybe have an intervention that gives you the same sensation. Then you don't have to smoke. And breath therapy is a proven intervention that uses breathing exercises as biofeedback to give people the sensations that they want from smoking. The problem is, breath therapy is boring. People will not do it outside the laboratory. Very successful in the lab, not successful in the real world because people need interventions, particularly when they're feeling playful. They're not gonna do something that, that they don't enjoy. So we said, What if we could make breath therapy entertaining through game design? And more than that, what if we could actually enhance it through game design by using things like game pace, game challenge, right? Color, sound, all of these things to enhance the breathing that we want people to do. So then we would have a game that was a replacement for smoking, which people might be more likely to use in a paratelic state than they would some kind of more serious intervention. So uh, we actually designed two games because people, when they smoke, have two main goals. Either they want to get a rush, like a thrill, or they want to relax and chill out. So I'm just going to tell you about one decision we made in one of the modes of the game uh, to give you a sense of how we turned this into a game design challenge and uh, an assessment challenge. So um, in Rush Mode, what we wanted people to do was hyperventilate, right? If you do that, which I invite you all to do, uh, you, will, uh, uh, you will find that your heart rate begins to go up. You start to sweat a little bit. You're experiencing what's called physiological arousal, which is what nicotine does to you. And um, we also wanted them to do it intermittently because as we discovered during the project, if you hyperventilate for too long, you will pass out. Um, no one was injured permanently. And, and uh, we also wanted it to be controlled. So people have different natural breathing rates we actually worked with some uh, breathing experts, which I did not know was a field until we worked on this project. And um, uh, you can actually, you have to take a baseline if you're asking people to hyperventilate or breathe slowly. These are the two things that we were asking people to do. So intermittent and controlled hyperventilation. So we sort of designed a game design challenge um, where you're uh, sort of doing this space shooting game. We want it to be a very sort of high action game in which periodically a black hole appears, right? And I bet you can guess what you have to do to pass the black hole, all right? If you hyperventilate uh, into the phone's microphone, the the warp gate opens in the black hole. And you have a limited amount of time to fill it up to that circle. So that was our way of sort of controlling how long people would hyperventilate for and um, also how many times they would be breathing. So it would actually be a customized number based on their breath baseline. And uh, either they'd open in time, in which case they would sort of, you know, shoot through the black hole and get this kind of cool visual effect, or they would die horribly. Ah, which I don't have an image of, but, you know, their ship would kind of explode and spiral back to the bottom of the screen. And uh, what we wanted to find out in terms of our assessment is uh, we were doing a laboratory study for the first stage of this project. So we wanted to see what effect smoking had on people. So it turned out, you know, it would make them happier. Um, it would make them emotionally aroused, so uh, there's a s- sort of a standardized emotion scale uh, that people were filling out and you know, made them more emotionally aroused, more excited. Um, their heart rate went up, their skin conductance went up, and uh, their EEG changed in ways that are too complicated for me to get into today, but if you're curious, I will send you the paper. And what we wanted to know is, is rush mode having the same physiological and psychological effects as a cigarette? have we managed to actually create a replacement? And the short answer is, check it out. We did. Um, If any of you want to see the data, I'd be happy to share that. Um, But, uh, you know, this talk is just sort of an overview of what we did. And uh, Rush Mode was quite successful. Relax Mode, it turned out, was a good deal more challenging um, for reasons I'd be happy to discuss later. Um, So this is a case where we expect that the player is already motivated to play our game. Right? The player of this game, of Lit to Quit, is someone who picks up the game in order to smoke less. But nonetheless, what we're interested in is then what the game does to this particular player. Right? This player who wants to smoke less, what's the physiological impact on, on them when they play this game? How does it change their physical experience through this biofeedback, breathing control biofeedback? And how does it change their attitudes and their emotions? So the third project that I want to talk to you about today is uh, Playing History, which is a research project I conducted in uh, collaboration with a medieval historian, which really gets at the um, full interaction, I guess, between game and player. And it's a little bit of a different study than either of the others, because it starts with uh, looking at a group of people who play a game called Ars Magica, who are doing some really interesting and unusual things. I see some of you are familiar with Ars Magica. And, um, so looking at, you know, what are they doing with history, particularly through the lens of game design and technology. So Ars Magica is an offline game, but, uh, they were actually using technology to enhance their practice in some very interesting ways. So you know, what makes them so engaged with history through the lens of this game and how do we generalize it? So uh, Ars Magica is a tabletop role-playing game, like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, have you guys vaguely familiar? So I'll just sort of walk you through some of the framework that I use to understand tabletop role-playing. Um, you know, there's a players and a game master who, um, uh, sort of the players portraying characters and the game master doing a lot of logistical work of coordinating the game, sitting around a table usually, face-to-face talking to each other, uh, who are together creating shared fiction, right? So we agree that our characters did this thing um, in this imaginary world. We all have the same understanding of what happened, ideally. Doesn't always work that way. Um, And we're using a shared canon of texts. So this is actually the cover of the Ars Magica book. They have a whole game line of books that you can buy. And we're using dice to kind of negotiate sometimes who has authority, like what actually happened in the shared fiction. Um, And, you know, this group especially was very interested in using external texts and uh, technological tools. And uh, it's all mediated through this sort of multimodal experience. They were drawing pictures. They were talking to each other. They were doing extensive writing. Um, One of the players uh, is actually a professional musician and was really connecting to the game through music. So interesting stuff here. And um, what we did is we looked at the game texts. We did participant observation, actually participant and observation. Right. Um, We interviewed all the members of the group, and we also looked at the digital artifacts that they created. To try to understand what's going on here. And here's the weird thing that we noticed. So, the group was doing some pretty interesting historical research about the year, uh, the the 13th century, in which the game is set. Um, And they were doing this research uh, sort of for the purposes of the game. So, for example, they wanted to know about animals being put on trial. uh, evidently there was a famous case where termites ate a bishop's throne and the bishop fell down when he sat on his throne so they put the termites on trial um, this was sort of a so they went out and they found accounts of this happening um, they were interested in the Sweden's trade system like where, where did the Swedes trade what did they trade if you wanted to be sort of wealthy in Sweden at the time what, what would you have um, early modern metallurgy this was a very like practical question what kind of armor can I have and um, they are also very interested in the, this uh, question of the theology of baptism. Um, uh, so Ars Magica is not a totally realistic game. The players actually take the roles of wizards in the 13th century. Okay? So um, it, with the theology of baptism, they actually wanted to understand the: what does baptism mean in a world where there is magic and your true name is some kind of like, mystical connection to you. They got very interested in understanding uh, period theology in order to answer that question, and uh, they talk about that. You know, they talk about that as tidbits of life that don't make it into the books, which is of course very interesting and ironic because where are they getting this? They're getting a lot of this out of books, right? So they have this conception of what history is that isn't this. Um, Although they were looking at maps, they were reading a lot of fiction uh, as well as nonfiction. Some of them were like going to university libraries to consult primary sources. Um, But they were also learning from each other, talking, sharing within the group. So learning and teaching each other uh, from their areas of specialty. So they weren't all studying uh, Sweden in the 1200s, but they would teach each other about it. And uh, what's amazing to me is that they universally, with the, uh, two exceptions, but, you know, the majority of the players kept saying, oh, history is boring, right? You can't root for history. History is all details. I'm not interested in history. I said, oh, really? And uh, what was that you were saying about you know, reading Isidore of Seville? Um, uh, and so the, the sort of one lesson, this, this is a, a sort of rich and complex project. But the one lesson that I wanna share with you is that this group actually transmuted history into narrative power within the game. And that's something that's supported, uh, if you look at these examples, um, these are all examples where the question that they were trying to answer is, what can I do, what can I have, who can I be? And it's supported by the game text because Ars Magica explicitly says, this is a fantasy game, you're playing wizards, here are some dragons, but it's set in a real 13th century and if you go out and you read about the 13th century, those things are true in the world of the game, right? So if you go out, we, there's actually a reading list of, his, of history books in the back of the Ars Magica book. So they're pretty explicitly situating themselves as a place where uh, sort of uh, uh, historical knowledge has some level of authority. But this group actually went beyond that. So they used history as a sort of rule zero. Rule zero is a term that comes from a game called Vampire the Masquerade. Um, which says rule zero is if people are not having fun, break the rules, Um, which is actually one of the most useless sentences in the history of the world because it doesn't tell you how to break the rules or what rules to break, Um, but it sort of gives you permission to remake and remix the text. So this group, their rule zero was actually very concrete. It was history trumps not just the rules, but also the traditional division of authority in the game. So the example that I want to give is from uh, a project that actually the entire group got obsessed with about medieval bestiaries. Um, the the uh, characters were uh, trying to fight Genghis Khan for reasons, and uh, <laughs> you guys don't need to hear uh, the, the whole backstory. They were trying to fight Genghis Khan. They had very good reasons for doing so. And they had approached the uh, sort of king of the birds who existed in this, in this fantasy version of the universe, and uh, they had negotiated that the birds were going to help them fight Genghis Khan. And the next session, one of the players comes in and says, Guys! Guys! Bees! Bees are going to crawl inside their armor and sting them to death. And the game master said, What are you talking about? You, you, you didn't get bees. You went to talk to the king of the birds. You don't, have, you don't have access to bees. And this player said, I went and I was reading the bestiary and I came across this saying, Bees are the tiniest of birds. Also, they are Christian. Um, and uh, you know and and the game master said you know okay you know that seems kind of crazy to me but uh, let, let's hear more about this and um, they went and looked at the text together and because the premise of ours Magica is that even if things were not accurate if things were sort of folk belief at the time those things can be true in the world the player actually overruled the game master and said bees are birds we have bees we are going to fight Genghis Khan with bees Um, So it was this like really powerful and rich moment of the players using history as a way of empowering themselves against um, their fictional enemy, but also against the sort of traditional division authority where the game master may get to say, you know, yes, you can do that. No, you can't do that. They got to say, no, game masters, you have to do what I say because look, it's here in this historical text and, you know we're going to keep reading bestiaries now and, uh, you know, we're going to plant a barnacle goose tree and we're going to, you know, we're going to get very involved in this whole like fictional bestiary world because we're now excited. We want to collect the whole set. So it turned into this very interesting project that was really player driven because history was the trump card in terms of in-game division of authority. So, uh, I guess I just want to end by saying that, you know, you can sort of see how all of these projects come back to this question of like, okay, you've got the game rules, but you've also got people's like human needs in the context of these real world problems, right? In the context of like, how do you get people engaged with history? in the context of how do people who want to stop smoking, what support and help do they need, in the context of how do you get people to change their mental models about a subject that's too sensitive to talk to many people about directly. And uh, in the long run, you know, what I'd like to do with this area of research is uh, I want to understand how groups use games in practice. And by that I mean both classes of people, like people who are trying to quit smoking, and also, individual play groups who are producing sort of idiosyncratic practices like this history as rule zero, that we can understand um, how those might be transported outward to other groups, when what use we can make of those individual practices. Um, I'm interested in assessing the impact of particular interventions, right? So it's not just about, you know, did we design a game that was interesting, but actually, what did it do when we tried it? Um, I'm interested in identifying larger classes of problems that are well solved by games. So there's been actually, I think, some really interesting work done on this in the past few years, but I think that there's more work to be done in terms of understanding not just what kinds of problems games can model well, but also what kind of human problems and human needs people seek out games for. Um, I want to help other game designers make better games, so I'm interested in not just taking my research as lessons for myself, but also in trying to um, create game design principles. So if you want to do X, you might want to think about theories A, B, and C, and uh, you know you should be aware of research, uh, the research that's been done, and really thinking about educating uh, sort of the next generation of game designers, people who are designing games with some kind of purpose. Um, and uh, you know, of course, I wouldn't mind changing the world. So uh, that's me. It's a pleasure to meet all of you. I think we're about to do Q and A, but. Uh, If you're interested in continuing the conversation beyond today, that's my email address. Thank you very much.
0: Jessica, thanks a lot. And just anecdotally, I mean, your last case reminds me of um, the power or maybe the curse of the word history. Dave Thielen and Roy Rosenzweig did a wonderful book where they interviewed, I don't know, like a couple thousand people to get their sense of history and especially where historical what sources carry historical credibility and authority? And the first thing they talk about in their book is how whenever they brought up the word history, it was like, no, I don't believe anything. It's all a bunch of lies, whatever. When they would use the past, Mm -hmm. everyone opened up. So they Mm -hmm. had to reframe the whole book project in Mm -hmm. terms of the past. Mm -hmm. It's funny how loaded some words are. So anyway, time for uh, questions. And uh, as usual, speak into the mic, please.
2: Hey it's so weird you're like this far away and talking to the mic what's up <laughs> um, I was wondering if you would unpack a bit the rhetoric of this concept of real world problems um, if only because there's kind of uh, thinking on um, some other talks that we've also heard on uh, on games with purpose right yep. uh, games to make an impact um, Kind of a problem I've had. With, with terms like that is that they often seem to imply this division between games for entertainment can never do any of these things. They don't deal with, with real world problems. They don't deal with purposes. They deal with you're doing these for fun and that's it. Right. Um, just for my for me I think that's nonsense uh, but that's only me. So I, I'm wondering what you would um, if you could talk more about uh, how you came to this uh, how you came to this concept of calling it real world problems and how um, how you would really define that term
1: okay so uh, actually i deliberately included bejeweled and world of warcraft because i uh sort of to address that as, as my examples to address that issue is i agree with you i don't believe that g- games for entertainment or games for fun are not are games without a, a purpose right they are in fact uh games that are very purposeful i think fun joy play are important purposes in their own right Um, but not just important purposes in their own right because I think there's actually a whole spectrum of why and how people engage in games for entertainment that I think solve real world problems for them. What it doesn't solve is bureaucratized or institutionalized problems. And to me, that's the challenge that I sort of want to make is um, I think that there's a lot of work in this field of you know whatever serious games, games for change, games for a purpose, whatever name you want to call them, that is really about subordinating the playful instinct to a sort of um, uh, uh, bureaucratization, right? Like I'm totally stealing that application from C. Wright Mills where he talks about kind of its service to larger social goals that may or may not be meaningful, uh, uh, that are kind of institutionalized to, to sort of existing hegemonic sources of power, right? So, you know, you see... Dance Dance Revolution, and even though it wasn't created for that, the way that it's often used and talked about when it's treated as a serious game is about like, oh good, let's make everybody fit, right? Which I find to be really actually pretty disturbing. At the same time, um, I'm really interested in player agency in the sense of, I don't ever think somebody plays something just for fun, in that I reject that notion of just. I think that when someone plays something for fun, they are seeking something, they are using uh, sort of uh, that media in a way that satisfies their needs. Um, and uh, you know, I draw on the work of Nicole Lazaro a little bit here where she talks about her research with users, talking about how a lot of people use games, for example, to regulate their moods. Um, I see people using games to uh, 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 form social relationships. So actually I'm doing some work now on a, a consulting project which looks at games as ways to get people to... may have better friendships in real life. Um, A friend of mine just finished her dissertation looking at uh, social relationships uh, with kids who play games. And uh, games turn out to be a really good way to create and form social relationships. I mean, like, okay, this sounds obvious, but, you know, the data is coming in to really sort of prove that. So I think that if you're seeking a friendship, seeking a social relationship... That, you know, if, for example, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I really dislike the game Scrabble. Um, I love reading, I love words, but I'm just like the world's worst anagrammer. But I play Scrabble with my family because my father and my sister love, love, love Scrabble. And um, it's a way that I relate to them. So I think, to me, that is a real world problem. It is a purpose. And I'm interested in unpacking the purpose in things that we call purposeless. Does that answer your question? Great.
3: So thanks for your talk. I, you know, this mention of uh, bureaucratized, uh, institutionalized problems that games can be able to address, I mean, it certainly relates to um, the issue of bias as you address it in advance. And I was, was fascinated to hear about uh, the situation with um, orchestra uh, interviews being changed because that shows that, I mean, it's not a matter of changing individual attitudes entirely. You can actually make an intervention that first of all shows people oh, yeah, we actually were biased. We didn't realize this. And then it also ameliorates the, the bias, right, mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, but <clears throat> and, and so there's a lot of things to look at at this institutional, cultural, social sort of level. But when you actually examine the play experience, it seems that you're looking highly individually at uh, galvanic skin response and, and uh, response to psychological instruments of individuals very particularly. I mean, there, there are other ways to, to look at how play exist, the representations of play in the media or, right. you know, the discourse communities online or, right. you, you know, studying the distribution of games. and I mean, so I'm wondering if there's some tension there between your interest in the cultural level at, of, of dealing with problems like bias but then focusing on very, very particular individual experiences when you study
1: right. games. Um Look, I, I would say I agree with you that there is a tension, but um, uh to me, I think, actually, they're both pretty critically important. And um, at the end of the day, I sort of had to pick an approach for my dissertation or for these projects. But um, I think that you can sort of take the, the uh, media and the, the, the sort of discussion around games into account in the way that you frame problems that you may be addressing in terms of collecting data on uh, sort of this more, like, uh, quantitative level. So media um, uh, frames like rhetoric about race and gender is actually a big part of how I chose the problem in the first place so we have this rhetoric of uh, colorblindness, you know particularly in America right I mean I don't know how many of you have ever heard someone go oh I don't see race um, right bullshit and um, you know we have choice feminism which is this rhetoric oh, oh women will just make all their individual choices and that has nothing to do with what happens to women as a class so for me, that was the sort of originating um, uh, 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 ideas, right, of looking at how these issues exist in our culture and then trying to answer some of the questions, looking at individual empirical data and obviously, you know, aggregating across a, a large group so we can say, well, you know, it turns out that this game design decision is better or worse. But uh, that's why I, in every project I do, it's never purely quantitative. There's always qualitative interviews with players And um, uh, I would say that, you know, it's complementary to this sort of larger scale work of looking at portrayals in media or looking at distribution, um, looking at reception uh, sort of socially instead of just sort of individually psychology. But I am in a psychology program. So at some level, that's what I'm doing right now. And uh, that we'll see what happens in the future.
4: Thanks for your talk. Uh, would you mind to go back to a slide for, from near the beginning, which is where you have the mammoth book of science fiction uh, stories? Oh. We we the, the, the OK, virus. here
1: we go. All right. <laughs> Uh, that's all right. If I were really good, I'd just be giving the talk backwards right now.
4: You, you could also <laughs> another way is to start the talk over. Then, oh right yeah, the I probably but,
1: should have done that. All right. Uh, well, uh, here we go. Right, so, yeah, yeah, so,
4: so my, my question is about because you mentioned a kind of distinction between the the individual and, and the systemic, right, and, and the individual and, and institutional models as crucial for your uh, your work, and there could be a. a there the are a number of different kind of reasons for this, and so the question is, in some ways, to push on that distinction between the individual and the systemic, and then to push on your particular reasons for that, uh, for, for that focus. And because later you divide this, uh, this slide, but actually, those uh, the distinctions here don't quite seem like the distinction between, say, individual discrimination and and institutional. To me, they seem like distinctions maybe of. Uh, 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 say a broad descriptive term and, and you know, more specific terms that get at that, that's some, that's some of the institutional issues. But for example, what I mean is that cultural norms and broken systems for some are, consti- are, are constitutive of forms of racism and sexism r- rather than you know, say oppositional versus systemic or, uh, 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 or, or, or individual. And the question then becomes when you say you want to cross the bottom line, but not the top line. Does that come from the, the stance of taking an objective your critical distance as a researcher rather than a kind of activist researcher? Does it come from a, a kind of a, a learning sciences uh, commitment that says that changing models is actually uh, more geared towards creating lasting change? Or is, or is there maybe a kind of a, a maybe conflation of, of, of terms in, 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 in some ways that, uh, that actually exposing uh, the, the systemic and, and the institutional would actually reveal what's at the top of the line uh, here so that you can do both at, at the same time. And in fact, they're necessarily intertwined.
1: Yes. Uh, okay, so, so uh, uh, I'm not sure I can address everything that's in that question, but I'll just say to start, you know, you, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are kind of like summaries of types of arguments that I saw and when I talk about making you know this distinction, it, there were people who were making these arguments in a way that sort of made them above, above the line. I, I sort of use these as shorthands. So you can talk about like broken systems, as a lot of people were using this, this uh, to talk about um, well, you know, you can only be eligible to get into this anthology if you had already been published. so let's look at the publication rates in you know the anthology the, 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 the anthologies that they were drawing from. So uh, that, I think, is, is less the issue that I want to address than the second half of your question, which is about why do I think that this is important for activism? And uh, the answer there is, I actually, I do. I don't think it's more important than changing attitudes. I think there is more existing work on changing attitudes. Um, and uh, I also think that, um, and this is based on, uh, actually, a media studies guy named Iyengar uh, Uh, Basically, what he did is he looked at if you framed a problem individually versus systemically, how did people react? And one of the things he found out is that people who had an agentic model of uh, uh, sort of uh, why there was a problem, he was actually looking at crime, right? If people had this agentic model of like, this person decided to beat up this other person versus understanding the systemic factors, they're very opposed to systemic solutions. So if you believe that it's an individual problem, you will actually resist systemic solutions. So to me, if you change somebody's attitudes without changing their underlying models, you're not necessarily giving them the equipment to themselves be uh, an effective agent for change. Because without an understanding of the kind of problem something is, you cannot make a persuasive case for the kind of solution that something should have. So for those two reasons, I really wanted to emphasize the conceptual change element. Now, in the long term for this project, I can imagine it being a part of diversity curricula, for example, and being used in a context where I really would be working both towards changing attitudes and towards changing conceptual models. But um, I feel like the, the sort of research opportunity... Uh, is to look at changing models. And I actually think that that's not just because it's an interesting research question that's understudied, but actually because I think it's critical for helping people um, become themselves able to defend and promote the sort of systemic and institutional interventions that we need if we're going to make change about these issues.
4: Okay, yeah, so that that partially answers it, but part of the observation is also just that it 's questioning in some way the distinction between the the attitudinal change and the change the change regarding yep. the, uh, the, uh, the institutional uh, control of, of of the problems and just that in some ways it might be that seeing something as institutional uh, only precludes the understanding that it, that it, you know, in some way it dismisses you know, what you see, it, what you're calling the attitudinal. The attitudinal, in fact, right. is entirely intertwined with right. the, the institu- institutional.
1: And I actually agree with that. But you know, this is actually getting at what Nick asked: is that when I look at this, I'm actually looking at the way that people lined themselves up. Who did they feel was on their side? So people were saying it's the attitudinal that, that determines who I'm arguing with. It's not the conceptual that determines who I'm arguing with. You'd have people, you know, in, in this quadrant arguing with people in this quadrant because they, they, wouldn't, they, they wouldn't understand that they're actually on the same, on the same sides of, of, of this line, right? People did not understand that they were having different conceptual models. They did line up along attitudinal lines. But you're absolutely right. They are intertwined, and that's why I've actually added the attitudinal piece to my quantitative because it came up so much in the qualitative. So, um I would say the short answer is you know you 're absolutely right, and that 's one of the things I found out by doing this study
0: so just to follow i mean it's it's an interesting thread um, when you when you were setting this up, what came to what, what I was hearing in the back of my mind was Elihu Katz, you know a noted uh, mass communications theorist and, and his so he sort of was grandfather of effects theory, moved into uses and grats very much on the social science side. Mm-hmm. And he would say, well, you know, what's, what's effects, what media do to people? What's uh, uses, and, uses and gratifications, what people do with media? And, of course, the cultural studies critique of that and this, the, the would be, well, actually there are, you know, interesting, but there are far larger dynamics uh, involved and and then you know so when when Nick asked the question in a way you said well but I'm in a psychology department and fair enough you know you're, there's methodologies that you're going to be encouraged to use yes. and that your institutional setting will more or less insist upon that have um, that can show that can illuminate certain things and will will occlude others and so I'm interested about that in terms of the institutionalization of game studies I mean they are popping up in different spaces so two questions I guess one is. And in a certain way, you've addressed this, but but so the, the, the metrics you're using for the individual um, are that are that are disciplinarily encouraged miss certain things that you're trying to fill in with ethnographic observation or that you're filling in with attitudinal survey. Yes. Um, wh- how do you see this playing out just in the field? Do you or, or is there complementary discourse out there that's that's looking at this from a, from a more far more qualitative side, far more let's say notions of ideology and culture being writ large as opposed Mm -hmm. to the... Mm -hmm. Could you just maybe talk a little about that space?
1: Sure. So there is a a sort of, you know, very very, I would say almost like traditional game studies, right? So looking at, you know, how do we understand what is this game really saying, right? Procedural rhetorics. What is this game about? How does it function in the world? How does it function in people's lives in this way of um, uh, trying to understand like what messages it sends, and um, uh, I think that's pretty uh, critically important because I think that it is a way of resisting the tendency of maybe like the more social science, uh, you know, the, and, and the, 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 the sort of, you know, oh, well, let's make games for learning to not maybe push back always against um, uh, sort of, Institutional ideas of like, well, you know, we're just going to kind of make games for learning that don't question this model of what is learning, what are schools. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that actually is exciting about the work that you guys are doing here, because I feel like you're combining that critical with the making. But in the larger field, that's actually what I think um, is the most important thing that I would like to see, is people who are combining the, the sort of uh, critical, like cultural studies approach, Uh, with actually producing artifacts because um, it's uh, games are so weird. Games are so weird because people don't just use them in the sense of like, I'm consuming this piece of media, but they actually transform them. They have this wide variety of experiences. And I think that it's very difficult in many ways for game scholars who... on both sides of that divide, right, kind of the I'm looking at games in this more institutional way versus in this more critical way, um, to understand the sort of freedom, the variety that happens within games um, without at the very minimum doing a lot of playing themselves. So um, I guess that's my, I'm not sure if that's that's an answer, but that's sort of my mission, maybe in the larger field of game studies, is to say how can we bring together sort of cultural criticism and you know, making, designing. And I think that that meets in critical play, which is one of the things that actually in my classes, I, uh, uh, my students have to play a certain number of games across the semester and respond to them critically. And that means critically as designers. So how are these rules achieving a certain effect, but also critically as theorists, right? What effect is this? And what what is this game saying through its rules, right? So I, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but...
5: Thanks Um, Going to this whole thread um, And then a separate question Or ask for elaboration But it sounds like some of what we're Eric has just published a paper In Teachers College College Record About having a need for an ecology of game studies Mm -hmm. That it requires a variety of approaches And no single approach is going to be sufficient for Defining the truth or, yep. um, or even the all truth yes <laughs> exactly um, I'd love to hear more about this sort of critique you glanced against a couple of times that of sort of a more traditional view of learning games um, since that's what we do here yeah. you know, down the hall yeah, and um, where you see that situated and you know, what your issues are with
1: it? So, uh, I, you know, I, I uh, had a couple of slides. I, I took them out for time purposes, which were like the, the worst, most insulting um, games I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> I feel like that's sort of the answer to your question is, is I see my work in opposition, not necessarily to people who have traditional conceptions of education or traditional conceptions of games, but rather in people who think that um, bad games can can sort of be good if that makes any sense so one of these games that uh, I just find it's so it's from something called the climate change pentathlon it's not a game it's a game for change, not a game for learning but it's the best example I've ever seen is um, so you're playing uh, you, there, there's a washer on the screen like a clothes, clothes washer and there's a dial that you can spin and um, the dial spins around and you have to click it when it's at the setting that will use the least energy. Which is noted for you by a big red marker. So basically it's, you know, this thing is spinning. Can you click it when it's in the zone? It has nothing whatsoever to do with what it's actually trying to teach. So there's sort of this cosmetic uh, layer of something that is so, sort of game-like. I actually was talking about this earlier as face validity, right? It sort of looks like a game. Well, let's, give, let's put some points on it. And to me, I think that's really problematic um, because it's insulting to games and it's insulting to whatever the domain is that you're trying to engage with. And I think that effective learning games are games that find what's fun and playable about the uh, uh, domain itself. And this may sound very familiar to you because uh, many years ago I worked with Scott Osterweil and uh, you know, that was sort of opened my eyes to how, how you could make something that was supposedly not fun just amazingly joyful and playful. So to me, um, effective learning games are about finding the joy in the activity, while at the same time always being aware that the activity is being prescribed by some kind of cultural notions about what we learn, what is of value, what kinds of institutions, uh, what counts as learning, who gets to be that judge. So always being like a little bit critical about that because a lot of our uh, sort of cultural conversation about learning is uh, highly prescriptive, um, highly institutionalized, industrialized. And um, I think play is actually a site of resistance to a lot of that um, in a good way, in a way that like, is like, oh, you know, learning is, is joyful. Learning is, is, is playful. This thing that I'm told is something that I must do is actually now something I may do and wish to do and how that sort of alchemy happens. To me, that is the magic of designing effective learning games, right? So that's what I try to get at with this Ars Magica research. It's like you take this group of people, you know, uh, one of them took college courses in history. None of the rest of them did. Never interested in history. This game, like, sort of turned them on to the past, right? We don't want to use that, the H word. Um, And all of a sudden, they're engaging in this thing that's kind of, like, culturally seen as oh well this is an educational thing and yet they're doing it out of kind of this deep engagement in their own purposes that it it sort of comes to have this own meaning in their lives so to me that like there's a there's a sweet spot that it's very hard to stay in like some of my work is definitely more in the like well we want to learn x right i did a project on um Civilization and SimCity and knowledge transfer through textbooks, right? I mean, really sort of fairly conventional stuff. Um, and some of it is really about, explicitly about resistance to uh, that sort of cult, those cultural norms. But in, in my ideal world, it's about infusing learning with the joy, play, and freedom of games um, and using that to reflect on the real world. Uh, sort of our cultural institutions and our ideas of what learning is, can be, and should be.
4: So this picks up a little bit where that that leaves off. So if you consider one one of the core aspects of gaming to be kind of joy and fun, kind of as uh, Ralph Koster and and others uh, do. But the the main question is uh, about uh, you know, games as a medium versus games as a tool. So the kind of instrumentality of of uh, games, and so that's you know, a, a kind of uh, you, know, a, you know major debate, I guess you could say in in game studies and and serious games. And so I want to try to understand where you fall uh, along those lines. And so I could give you know, to to make a kind of trite analogy that uh, you know you, it's just the idea about well let's let's you know, create books. You know, against uh, drinking or books to you know, reduce uh, sexual, uh, 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 sex-based discrimination. You know, for for example, well then you're in the domain, the domain of, uh, 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 or, or or even films, right? The domain of some, some uh, uh, pamphlets or textbooks, you know, right? At the same time as uh, you I, also, I,
1: I would challenge that. By the way, for I, I think that one of the most powerful ways that that change happens is actually through fiction. Young, if you read young adult fiction that that's like transformational for attitude change among among yep. young adults so I would actually like push back and say that, you know, I'm not sure that it's always about like, let's do this didactic sort of thing. Let me be a pamphlet, let me be a textbook, but rather to say like, you know, what happens when there's emotional engagement with something that also happens to express a certain set of social values. Right.
4: I and mean, of course, I agree. That's where I'm sort of going. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, <You're> sorry, <laughs> sorry
1: that I got there. Question.
4: Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I guess mean, what I would say is that, if, you know, even the mainstream example, like leaving Las Vegas, you know, the movie <laughs> against uh, uh, drinking or work of Joanna Russ, you could say, It could be a book against... uh, 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 against a particular kind of institutionalized uh, sexism, mm-hmm. but the framing is of course different in, in those kind of practices than yes. saying i 'm authoring a book for change or or, or. Right. <laughs> so so yeah. it 's partly the, the the framing and it's, and the issue is the inst- the instrumental framing is part of the the, the distinction that that, that i 'm getting at so not yeah. that these media can't actually create that kind of change, but right. when you frame it as an instrument, instrumental uh, problem then that affects in some ways the kind of approach uh, because you mm-hmm. might actually If you have empirical data that suggests that in a particular instance, then didacticism actually works better than if you're taking the kind of games for change approach, then you have a decision to make. Do you actually take the didactic approach or do you do what the literary authors uh, uh, do? And so that's where I'm asking kind of where you come down along that kind of divide and and with the fallout of the kind of instrumental uh, framing of, of the question.
1: So I guess maybe I would say that that to me I would, I would sort of push back against the notion that it's a divide because to me games are always tools. It's just a question of in whose hands they are, right, and who has designed the tools and who has who is framing the problem that is to be solved with the tool. So to me that question of instrumentality is very much about taking the tool away from the player, the individual player, and giving it to some kind of, you know, to giving it to quote unquote society. Um, but uh, look, I agree with you. I mean, I think that uh, th- this, this idea of instrumentality is really problematic. And to me, that's where, I mean, I feel like someone should really be writing about the study of game studies and how the rhetoric of instrumentality is being used, because I think it's uh, actually connected to sort of a larger cultural themes um, of uh, uh, instrumentality of, of getting it, of getting somewhere, of, of anxiety, of school anxiety, um, of uh, 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 this sort of rhetoric of concerted cultivation, of like always like trying to improve yourself, take care of yourself. I mean, I think it's a reflection of our society as a whole. So, um, I feel like there's really interesting work to be done there. But, uh, go ahead. I was going to say one more so thing. Just, to say if, well, if
4: I, just if I understand what you're saying uh, correctly, that you're saying that, you know, that right there 's a problematic framing of the of the instrumental uh, uh, approach, but at the same time. You're taking instrumentality and using it in a different way to say that even games for for entertainment are tools for entertainment. Is that, exactly. Is that correct? Exactly.
1: Exactly. And then and that therefore, if we think of games for entertainment and tools for entertainment, we can think about how to do them how to do them better, how to how to how to make them more fun, more pleasurable. In the same way that like we can think about like how do you write an effective thriller? Right. There are these sort of genre understandings in, for example, literature. We know the difference between a textbook and uh, a, you know a young adult novel and Um, you know a horror novel but we don't really like the the generic understandings within games are very much more about gameplay mechanics and not about impact or on the player necessarily and like there's this weird sort of cross-cut where it's never quite about even the aesthetic and narrative experience that are the cuts it's really about kind of a gameplay experiences so what I'm interested in doing is actually drilling down to tools and techniques that you can use and say, all right, so I'm making a game that's like a textbook, right, but how can I do that better? I'm making a game that's like a novel. How can I do that better? But I think, you know, your characterization of what I'm saying is spot on, which is I think, look, games are always tools. I think, you know, media is always a tool of some kind. Um, And the question is, to what extent is it your hand on on the lever, and to what extent is it sort of the ghostly hand of society sort of holding your hand and and moving with you. Thank you.
2: Uh I'm gonna switch gears a little bit actually if anybody wanted to follow up on that first. No. Okay. Um so I'm I'm gonna ask kind of a strange question with two parts. Sure. So um we're gonna flash forward maybe five, six years. Okay. Uh you're, you're, you're tenured, you're famous, everyone loves you, um, and the head, of, the head of your department at I'm So Awesome University comes to you and says, um, we'd really like you to make a certificate program in, um, in, in this field that, you, that you've become a specialist in. And uh, the first part of this question is what, what would you call that field? Give it a snappy name uh, if you have to. Um, that's the unimportant part of the question. The important part of the question is, uh, what what sort of um, you know what sort of classes and programs and things would you want would you want students to go through to become an expert in the type of things that that you are interested in and that you would want to bring to um, that you would want to bring to a program.
1: Great, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I fail to have a snappy name, but um, uh, this. Uh, uh, Tran- hammerism, love it. <laughs> Transformative play. How's that? Okay. So, all right, so, so I am founding the Institute for Transformative Play. So what are my students going to come and learn? So I think that there's sort of three um, uh, three and a half tracks, all right, that I want my students to sort of progress along. Um, one is theory, okay, and that means uh, sort of uh, doing this like weird blend of, you know, cultural criticism, um, a little bit of psychology, maybe a little bit of learning theory, but really, uh, and certainly game theory, right, understanding debates in game studies, but also understanding how to bring in perspectives from maybe, uh, maybe each of them would choose one other discipline that would be their lens in understanding game studies, so that would be one track. There would be a, sort of an observation track. So I would require all of my students to go out and watch people playing games um, and observe how people actually use games in practice. Because as uh, game designers, it's really easy to get caught up in your ideal vision of how people play as opposed to being realistic about the way that people will fold, spindle, and mutilate your game in practice. Um, and then the third would be um, uh, you know, critical play and game design which, you know, maybe those are even two different tracks, right? Make, make you play a lot of games, right? And uh, uh, understand how they work. Uh, there would certainly be a gameplay requirement. You know, you have to come out and you will have played these hundred games. Um, and uh, also doing hands-on design, right? Even if you intend to come out as a theorist, I think it's critical to have some understanding of the design process. Um, I sense you want to follow up.
2: Yes, I do. Um... Uh-huh. Could you? I thought I thought that first comment actually was really really interesting in terms of that you would have to study the debates of game of game studies, um, of which there are many. Uh, but then that you would also tell people to find a discipline to be their lens, which um, I think is really interesting for the state of game studies right now. Right. You know, in the sense that, um, like media studies it 's so multidisciplinary right um, i 've got so many people who will, whose work I argue with because they 're from you know outer space as right. far as i 'm concerned, <laughs> theoretically speaking, you know my background is in mass communication, right. somebody coming from um, you know more of a computer computer science point of view. I often read their stuff, and i 'm like that 's really fascinating, and i didn 't understand a word of it uh, so i 'm wondering if you could talk more about how you how you would want to include that 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 or at least Im- either embrace or reject or mold that idea of game studies being such an interdisciplinary um way of approaching things
1: so i guess um i'm of the opinion that we should be scavengers right we should take anything and everything that is useful to us to solve the problems that matter and um, When I say that I I would ask students to take sort of a disciplinary lens, possibly more than one, that's not because I think sort of there's some theoretical reason why it's important to kind of study game design through the lens of communication, right? But rather, if the kinds of games you want to make and the kinds of questions that you want to ask, the kinds of transformation that you expect to see are of the kind of problem that is well answered by theories of communication then you should go out and find out what they already know let's not reinvent the wheel right so that's why actually i see game studies as an opportunity to be embedded in the larger fabric of knowledge and to start breaking down because we are relatively new these disciplinary walls that were put up you know uh, uh, over decades and to say you know look you know we don't we don't actually have to play that way We can say, you know, and again, like I go, I I read, um, uh, this is going back to Mills, right? It's like, take the tools you need to solve the problem at hand. So uh, when I talk about that, I talk about it as a pragmatist. If you're interested in how people design tutorials or write facts or teach each other, then you should be looking at learning theory to understand how people teach and learn, right? That should be a piece of how you're answering your question. So um, my vision for the Institute of Transformative Play is that it actually turns out uh, a range of designers who can answer a range of questions, a range of theorists who can answer a range of questions. But because they have the shared experience of this core of game studies, critical design, player observation, and game production, they also have ways to talk to each other and understand each other no matter which other lenses they are bringing in. So I do see the lens of critical play and game design as central, but we should steal everything we can, everything that works, in order to make us better at transforming people's lives through play.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah you should run this uh, Institute of Transformative Play Ball, by the way. Like, okay. it, sounds, it sounds very sexy, business
1: card. Cool, <laughs> sounds good. You're invited.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, Thank you.